Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is the history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with us. First, I have a Scott R. Christensen, an author and a historian. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's good to be here. Today, we also have with us Shaylin Back, who works here at the Mormon Channel. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shaylin. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Chapter 9, Come Life or Death, in Saints Volume 1. This is a, a, a pretty interesting time. The Book of Mormon has been published. The, the church has, in fact, been established. We finished kind of part one um, of Saints with the first eight chapters. Scott, what's, what's happening now in the lives of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery? Boy, there's a lot going on. There are revelations that are continuing uh, to come on a regular basis. Uh, it, I'm sure to the saints, it seems like every month there's there's a, a new revelation, a new um, aspect of, of doctrine that they had not considered. It would have been an incredibly exciting time to be in the church. It's not like the uh, handbook of instructions just like came the first day and they knew exactly <laughs> how it's all going to work, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think we do uh, people... Uh, in the early church a disservice if we assume that the restoration was a single event and all of a sudden it's all there. All the doctrines are in place. We have a nice printed manual and we can move forward. Uh, God doesn't work that way. God works piece by piece, concept by concept, um, and reveals truth as the saints are ready for it. So it took a while uh, to get all of the foundational doctrines expressed in Scripture. One of the the, the things our, our listeners are going to encounter when they read or listen to this chapter that, that really shows how God does work in amazing ways. The pretty remarkable event in the life of Newell Knight. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book about this event, and then we can talk a little bit more about the effect it had on members of the church. One day, Joseph invited him to pray at a meeting, but Newell said he would rather pray alone in the woods. The next morning, Newell went to the woods and tried to pray. An uneasy feeling came over him, and it grew worse as he started for home. By the time he reached his house, the feeling was so oppressive that he begged his wife Sally to get the prophet. Joseph hurried to Newell's side and found family members and neighbors watching fearfully as the young man's face, arms, and legs contorted wildly. Scott, this is a pretty scary moment here. What happened? <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what all of the people that are watching Newell are thinking. What is going on? What has happened to this man that we know and love, and he's all of a sudden incapable of function and seems uh, like he's being tortured from, from some unseen force? I'm sure they were, like, totally freaked out. I think we would. Would you, Shailene? <laughs> yeah, we don't see that happening today as much. <laughs> So, so the prophet Joseph comes on the scene and, and relate to our listeners what happens. So it's interesting. Um, Joseph Smith arrives and he holds the priesthood, which hasn't been restored for too many years by this point. He is able to cast uh, Satan 
out of out of Newell and uh, restore Newell to the condition he had before this uh, this fearful incident. And and I'm sure that this was a remarkable event. Of course, it would be for any group in any time. Uh, but you've got to realize these are people who had spent most of their lives without the concept of the priesthood being restored. If something like this happened to someone you loved, there was nothing you could even hope to do but pray. Right. Uh, there was no priesthood power. There was no ability to uh, channel the power of, of God through the priesthood uh, and rectify a situation like this. So I've got to think that the people who witnessed this, who were already strong in the faith, were strengthened even more. Well, and what I thought was interesting about this experience is that it wasn't Joseph who noticed Newell and was like, hey, I have the power to to help this situation, but they sought out Joseph. So it's cool because it's showing their faith, but it's also showing the humility of Joseph, how, you know, they came to him. He wasn't seeking that out to use this priesthood power that he had to kind of, you know, show other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is a remarkable story. And we know later on, and, and our listeners will get to know and love Newell Knight, this is a moment that stays with him his whole life, that he, he remains faithful um, and, and unshaken, really, in, in many respects because of this incident. Our listeners may, may also find it interesting to understand that even though the church has now been officially formed, Emma, the prophet's wife, is actually not yet a baptized member of the church. And so she expresses a desire to be baptized now, it just, it's smooth, right? They run on down to the stake center. There's, it's like, the, it's like on a Saturday afternoon. The font's already filled up. It's With warm water. Heated water. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's awesome. <laughs> Scott, what happened at Emma's baptism? Yeah, so again, it's the beginning of the church. There is nothing standardized. Um, and this is June of 1830, so it's a few months after uh, the April 6th um, formal establishment of the church. Um, there are no fonts. Uh, other churches aren't practicing uh, typically uh, baptism by immersion. So you go to a place where you can find water, which are typically streams that, uh, that you feel that you can wade into without endangering yourself. And if they're not large enough, you have to partially dam them up with rocks on one side and, um, and create a deep enough pool that you can have a baptism by immersion. The problem with that is when you start moving rocks around and, and starting to dam up streams, you you tend to attract attention, right? And, and that's what happened here. The the neighbors and antagonists noticed that they're they've dammed the river. There's going to be a public baptism, and they go to to do the baptism. And what do they find? Fortunately, the baptism does happen. Uh, Oliver Cowdery baptizes uh, Emma Hill Smith. They plan to do a confirmation so that she can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost uh, immediately after. They can't do that uh, because the mob is threatening uh, that they finally have to leave and take care of that uh, other part of the ordinance later on. Let's, Let's listen to a little clip from the book that kind of talks about that experience. Over the next two days, Joseph was tried in court and acquitted, only to be arrested and tried again on similar charges. After his second hearing, he was set free, and he and Emma returned to their farm in Harmony before she and the Colesville Saints could be confirmed as members of the church. 
So th these folks that are watching kind of get charges going that Joseph is disturbing the peace. He's arrested twice at his own wife's baptism trying to confirm her. And then basically they have to leave town just to confirm her. It's really kind of an incredible story. It is, and I just think how terrifying too when you're trying to do this good thing in your life. You know, you want to be baptized, you have this desire, and it's like everything just is kind of thrown at you to stop it. But not little things, <laughs> certainly not little things. They were threatening her life, as I understand, right? And that's such a strange concept to us because we have the benefit of living in a society where we have rule of law and you know that you're safe. If you want to do something like a religious service um, out in the woods, uh, no one is going to mess with you over that. But in this era, it's such a religiously charged environment, and there's a lot of confusion about this new religion that were they were often called Mormonites. Uh, they were really misunderstood. And it's so strange to me to consider that they would actually threaten physical harm or death to people that were doing something just because they themselves didn't understand it. It is kind of a strange thing to consider when we're not there. We, we're separated by time and and culture even that has changed. I'd say if, if Emma only knew that this would be representative of most of the rest of her life, that uh, she would always feel like she was in the bullseye or near the bullseye uh, in terms of the kind of abuse that her family experienced just because they were trying to do the right thing. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. There's another part of the story that I wanted to bring up. As you mentioned before, things weren't the same as they are now. The church is just beginning. So we're experiencing this story as it unfolds. Revelation is coming to the prophet and also to others. You may have read, our listeners, in the Doctrine and Covenants about a man named Hiram Page. And they probably kind of, like me, just zipped right past it and didn't maybe understand what it was talking about. Scott, what happened with Hiram Page at this time? He started receiving uh, what he thought were revelations for the church. And he was, as I understand, a, a sincere man who thought he was, was doing the right thing. But in receiving what he thought were revelations and starting to share them, hoping that they would be of use for the whole church, he was really stepping into an area where he did not have authority, not, not just by the church's rules, but he didn't have the authority of of God uh, to be God's mouthpiece. And so then we have a, a difficult situation. What does Joseph Smith do uh, with this, this member of the church who is starting to announce things that are not uh, doctrine and they're not revelation? It's gotta be kind of confusing, don't you think, for members, because they, they believe that we can receive revelation. We believe that. Mm -hmm. We believe in personal revelation and answers to our prayers. So how does this work? And what what happens? Uh, Joseph seeks direction from the Lord, and that's where, in fact, we get a, a section of the Doctrine and Covenants that clarifies how this, this will work for the church. And it's just one more example of the gospel being revealed uh, line upon line, precept upon precept. Until this event happens, it's never occurred to the saints that they couldn't all potentially receive revelation for the entire church. And, and you're so right that, yes, we, we are so blessed to know that God is aware of us and is anxious to bless us with the direction that we need for our own lives. But this was an important clarification where the Lord could say, but I have a mouthpiece. I select someone in every given moment of time that my church is on the earth to speak for me. And uh, Hiram, it's not you. Right. <laughs> it's Joseph Smith. 
it was interesting to me because I was just reflecting on my life and I've been alive for several prophets and there's been this precedent where we know exactly, well, exactly what happens. You know, we don't have to fear or be confused. Right. There's it's, a process. Yeah, there's definitely a process that's been set. And so I was just kind of putting myself in the from the perspective of the saints, the early saints, and just thinking how confusing that would be. and But then also how comforting it is that they personally knew Joseph Smith. And I think that would be so neat too. Like I don't personally know the prophet, but we have that comfort of that process. After this, this moment and sort of along the same time, um, the, the church is brand new. It's this fledgling little group. And already they've got some pretty audacious plans. Joseph calls Oliver to go on a mission to native peoples. Um, Let's listen to a little clip here from the book. The revelation then called Oliver to go nearly a thousand miles to the western edge of the United States to preach the restored gospel to American Indians who were remnants of the house of Israel. The Lord said that the city of Zion would be built near these people, echoing the Book of Mormon's promise that God would establish the New Jerusalem on the American continent prior to the second coming of Christ. It doesn't surprise me that this would be one of the uh, uh, really important early initiatives by this fledgling church to locate and teach American Indians. When you look at it, the title page of the Book of Mormon, which was also translated as part of the scripture, declares that that book of scripture is written to the Lamanites who are a remnant of the house of Israel and also to the Jews and Gentiles. And so it was clear that this book of scripture, uh, if the church was going to be using it correctly, they were going to be sharing it with the Lamanites, uh, the American Indians. Um, And so then the question is, how do you do that? And I have a question too. What, What were the relations with American Indians like at the time? For the United States? Very poor, generally. There were some early uh, uh, reservations that had been enacted by federal uh, statute, uh, and other American Indians were still living in the areas they'd always lived, but as soon as that uh, land was desired by uh, Euro-American settlers, the Indians were moved out. Uh, there had been an estimate of 400,000 American Indians die since uh, the 1700s, just exposure to uh, European diseases and and uh, limitations of access to resources. So uh, the American Indians were, were absolutely under threat wherever they encountered Euro-Americans. And most were tolerated at best. Then you have th- this new religion, the Mormons, who actually call these Indians fellow Israelites because it's clear from Scripture that American Indians are Israelites. These aren't people that you can just dismiss and, and sweep away. Uh, you have to embrace them as people that you respect and you've got to teach them uh, the gospel. And early church leaders thought, well, we'll, we'll teach them and they'll be baptized and everything will, uh, will go well. And there were early efforts in that regard. The uh, Lamanite mission that Joseph Smith established in 1830. Uh, they went to the Cataragas in New York, the Wyandots in Ohio, the Shawnee in Delaware that had been relocated to uh, the area that's now Kansas. And they met with great reception from these tribes who, as the Book of Mormon was described to them through translation, uh, they loved it, they felt it was true, and they wanted the church established in their communities. What happened from that? We, we have the, the missionaries going there, Oliver among them, Mm-hmm. You say they're well-received, yeah. at least initially. What became of this effort? Sadly, what, what becomes a pattern 
every time um, thereafter where the church tries to share the gospel with American Indians, federal agents who have responsibility for those tribal relationships assume that the Mormons must have ulterior motives, uh, that they either want to uh, make friends with them to take their land or that they want to ally with uh, the Indians to have a, a stronger force uh, to bully their way uh, against other settlers in the areas. None of those were motives um, that were in the minds of any of the Mormons, but that was the paranoia of the time. And they would just begin to establish congregations and then would be forced away by, uh, by these government agents. So in the particular case of Oliver and his mission, they're told by the federal agents, you know, you, you don't have a, a license to be here. You, you got to go get one. And he sends one of his companions back to get the license, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually just, I think his like, time runs out and he's just ready to be done and, and, and the license is not coming. I found it super interesting in, in Saints to learn that he had heard of another group of Indians who may be receptive who were they and how far away were they? Yeah, and I wonder how he even knew. I, I know, this is what <laughs> fascinates me. Uh, but it would be the Navajo, uh, who obviously were in uh, the, the southwest section of what we, what we now see as the United States. It wasn't then. Um, and what little they had learned, that the, they felt that that would be a group that would be responsive. Uh, to the gospel message. And it's interesting, it took a long time for that to happen, but not a really long time. Uh, By uh, 1855, Brigham Young established Indian missions, uh, five different missions to different groups, and uh, the Navajo were one of those, along with the Pima, Zuni, Papago, uh, Maricopa, Hopi. So all of the tribes in the Southwest were proselyted, and there was a great positive response and early congregations were set up in some of those communities. We're going to learn a lot more about about those particular efforts in Volume 2 of Saints. Volume 1 ends in 1846. So we're going to learn more about that in an upcoming Saints Volume 2. Our listeners are going to have to wait for a, a little bit of time to hear more about those stories. But Scott, while we have you here today, can you tell us a little bit about the church's efforts and some of these moments with uh, Native peoples that kind of stem from this beginning to, to reach out to to them. Uh, I'd love to. I, I love this history. I've done a lot of research specifically uh, about Shoshone-Mormon uh, interaction. Uh, it's interesting that as Brigham Young's Vanguard Company comes uh, out in 1847, they immediately start um, engaging with Shoshone and Ute and Goshute and Paiutes, any, any people they're coming upon and uh, brokering uh, agreements of peaceful settlement. Uh, they're good relationships early on. Obviously, there become times of conflict when resources are limited and, and there, uh, there are problems uh, with, with local individuals engaging in violence uh, back and forth. But one of the great cases, uh, I think, in Mormon history where where what the Mormons hope for with the American Indian pretty well happens uh, is uh, with the Shoshone in in, uh, northern Utah and southeastern Idaho. Those people, the Shoshone, start experiencing dreams and visions, which was the way that they uh, feel that they had interaction with uh, with their great God that taught them that they should 
seek out the Mormons and be baptized. So beginning in 1873 with the baptism of Sagwitch's entire tribe uh, and going through 1875 uh, with the baptism of, of another 1,800 Indians from various tribes in, in the Intermountain area, uh, we have this huge uh, conversion experience and, and the church uh, moves quickly to teach them farming skills and to get them settled and did some really good things. In 1875, there was an amendment passed to the 1862 Homestead Act that finally allowed the government to consider American Indians as people. Isn't it strange they had to pass a statute so that said Indians could be considered as people and therefore could file on homesteads like anyone else. Uh, and so the, the Mormons helped dozens of uh, Shoshone to file on homestead lands. It's kind of absurd to think they're filing on lands that they already inherently own, uh, but they had to do that in order uh, for the government to uh, let them stay in Northern Utah and, and not be forced to reservations where they, uh, they would have faced starvation and other issues. So it's a success story. Uh, Sagwich's son, Jaeger, uh, speaks at General Conference in 1926 through a translator, he's speaking in Shoshone, and it's the first recorded occurrence of a general conference talking a language other than English. Yeah, we, was, we, we think that just happened like a couple years ago in general yeah. conference. But yeah, it was such a big deal when it was announced. Turns out, actually happened in the 1920s. That's right. Uh, and then Sagwich's grandson, Moroni Timbimbu, you gotta love that <laughs> name, uh, was the first American Indian to serve as a bishop, and he had an all-Indian bishopric. So, it's a it's an amazing story, and I would just invite our listeners who might be interested in learning more about uh, American Indians and relations with the church to read the topic that's associated with this chapter. Uh, it's simply called American Indians, and you can link to that directly from Gospel Library um, or on saints.lds.org. So, let's end uh, this episode with one final tidbit about a. An amazing story. Um, we, we have a, a Book of Mormon given to a, a woman by the name of Rhoda Green, her husband, John Green. Rhoda and John get a copy of the Book of Mormon, and who knows, did it do any good? Well, did it do any good? It seems like it did. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What happened because of this book? Um, who, who learned about the church uh, through this experience? You know, I think this is a remarkable story. I absolutely love this. Um, sometimes books have legs, right? They they get shared. Uh, they don't just stay with the person that uh, initially um, comes to own it. Uh, and that's what Rhoda Green did. She shared it with her brother, Brigham Young. And Brigham Young shared it with his buddy, Heber C. Kimball. And uh, the, the Greens were converted um, quickly. They They loved it. They they knew that it was divine scripture, but Brigham Young, it was, it was an interesting uh, process for him. Uh, it took him upwards of two years of study and analysis and reading and reading and, and prayer uh, to um, have the kind of spiritual experience that confirmed truth to him. But wow, once he did, <laughs> right? Uh, talk about a larger than life character in Mormon history, you've got Brigham Young. Things eventually mature in people's minds. They, they, we all come to conclusions at different points in our lives. To me, this story gives me confidence to just share the gospel in my 
everyday life too, because you don't know who's going to share an experience with who and when and how long it's going to take. But I feel like that just makes me not feel as discouraged when people don't seem to care about my beliefs or, you know, the things that I share with them initially. Not everyone's going to be Parley Pratt. It's just going to read the book overnight and then just go. And and not every experience we know is going to be like the saints at Benbow Farm. You know, mm-hmm. they're just going to join in mass and as whole congregations. I, I love this story because Brigham takes his time and his family's okay with that. I'm sure they continue to share with him, obviously, because he eventually decides to join the church. Mm-hmm. Br- Brigham and this story of the Greens just gave me a little bit of hope for, like you said, Shaylin, just sharing the gospel in our, our daily lives like we normally do. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. There's so much more in this chapter. Um, invite our listeners to listen in and learn how Parley Pratt shares the gospel with his good friend, Sidney Rigdon, and, and what an amazing effect that has on the early church. Also explore the topics where you can learn more about Emma Hale Smith, the Gathering of Israel, Gifts of the Spirit, Zion, and and more about Kirtland, Ohio. Thank you again for joining us uh, for this episode of the Saints Podcast. Remember, you can always learn more at saints.lds.org, where you can download the latest topics, videos, and you can read the chapters we've been discussing today. Finally, don't forget to subscribe, and to do that, you can visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days.